Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, first of all, let me just say thanks to everybody who um, wished me well, made inquiries, sent thoughts and prayers and all the rest. Um, I'm doing much better. Still not exactly clear what was going on. I think um, best guess right now is a atypical bout of diverticulitis, but I've gone to the doctor and Blah, blah, antibiotics, yada, yada, yada. Don't want to get into it. Um, but it's been a rough couple of days. Um, kind of sucked it at all timed with my wife coming home. Um, and um, uh, and it really bums me out that uh, um, the Fukuyama interview had to happen when I was just so out of it. Um, I guess we'll get to that in a second. Um, uh, oh, the other thing. So I haven't, you know, so the Wednesday G file. So the reason why we did the, the Wednesday G file thing, which for people who don't subscribe or aren't members, um, uh, what I did was I awoke from my fevered slumber and asked a guy to find a chapter in Tyranny Clichés, my underrated book, and edit it down um, to as a substitute for a G file because I just I couldn't write. Um, I could type, but I just couldn't write. And um, uh, and he did, and some people liked it, and some people really hated it. I'll be blunt; I haven't read the edited version because I just basically went back to sleep. Um, I did find some of the criticisms weird, um, particularly the ones that skipped over the introduction and just simply started with, um, I'll give you a pass for this because you're sick. Um, as if I had written it while I was sick when I'd actually wrote it, um, coming up on 10 years ago. So, um, you know, uh, I'll take a look at the editing when I get the edited version when I get a chance, but I just found some of the, the criticisms just sort of hit or miss. Um, but some people really liked it and it generated some paid subscribers and that's great. Um, I do think the book's underrated and, you know, like every book I've ever written, if I could rewrite them, I would rewrite them in different ways because as events change, so do my points of view on some things. Um, but I, I, I like that book. Um, I certainly wouldn't, write that book today that way in the sense that um it only looked leftward and um in in this sort of argumentation and you know i got a lot more criticism of the right these days than i did back then and i had criticism of the right of those days too but i just didn't feel like it was all that vital for me to be firing in that direction and you know I, for reasons that are pretty obvious to people times have changed my attitudes have changed on all that kind of stuff but it is what it is so what to talk about um 
we tried a bunch of times to get a uh, uh, colleague, uh, Mary Beth Ackers. I think it's Ackers. I apologize if it's Acres. I think it's Ackers. Um, formerly, I believe, formerly of the Manhattan Institute. She may be jointly appointed, but she now has a fellowship with or an association with AEI. She wrote um, a, a pretty widely respected book called Game of Loans um, about student loan stuff. We tried to get her on a couple times, but uh, her schedule got messed up. My schedule got messed up. She got sick. Then I got sick and yada, yada, yada. Um, still want to get her on, but I highly recommend just Googling some of her stuff on the, on student loans. Um, she really does seem to be the foremost person who knows what they're talking about on this stuff. Um, um, look, I, the, with any large trend, there are going to be examples in, on the side of your argument, um, for the most part, right? I mean, if you're convinced that, I don't know, um, chickens are secretly running um, the country, uh, you might have some circumstantial evidence, <laughs> but you're not really going to have some strong evidence. But, you know, within broad policy frameworks, you know, even for I, arguments that I think are completely and entirely wrong, you're going to find anecdotes because in on your side because that's um and not just anecdotes you know trends um one of the consistent themes on this podcast because it's one of the consistent themes in in sort of conservative thought is um uh everything is about trade-offs and um you know free trade is great um but free trade does create winners and losers and and the losers i don't mean that in a characterological sense I mean that in a, you know, in a strict socioeconomic uh, bottom line sense, um, and the losers aren't deserving of the raw deal that they get um, when, say, textile factories are moved overseas. Um, similarly, with student loans, there are people who were subjected to um, I hate the phrase predatory loans. I really do. Um, uh, you know, unless you're a, you know, and again, there are examples, I mean, like uh, not just loan sharks, but you know, there are examples of things that I understand why people call them predatory loans, but you know, a lot of time people make it sound like someone put a gun to somebody's head and says, you will take this money from us. Um, uh, but there are examples of schools hyping crazy grad programs that have no track record of generating um, the kind of income that will allow them to pay back the loans. And they take advantage of people um, who have been told all their lives the most important thing you got to do is get your kids educated um, or get yourself educated. And, uh, and they pull the wool over their eyes. And I think that's grotesque. Um, at the same time, you know, that's not an argument necessary for student loan forgiveness, or at least it's not an argument for student loan forgiveness without the major string attached of beating the crap out of the universities that do this stuff. That's one of my biggest problems with the student loan argument is that everyone gets well, except the taxpayer. Uh, the people who took the who made the bad decisions, whether it was their fault or not, we can just put that aside. But the whole point is if you can't pay back the loans, they were an objectively bad decision in some sense, right? Um, they get made whole. The universities still get to keep the money. And the only people holding the bag are the taxpayers. And, um, and you still have the issue of moral hazard. And the federal government never should have taken over the, all of student, this whole student loan program stuff in the first place. But the, the, the higher education system is in desperate need of reform. If you just look at the numbers of administrators to faculty at a lot of these schools, basically what these schools are doing is they're just growing like blobs. And then you have an enormous number of people who need to justify their jobs. So they make up more crises. They make up more dangerous words. They make up more things to regulate about people's lives and the more and more things to hold kids hands about. 
And it's a self-perpetuating um, cycle. And they all get nice middle-class and upper-middle-class incomes as a result. Anyway, the, 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 my real problem with the student loan stuff is that most of the people, first of all, let's put it this way. Um, most people, most millennials or Gen Z, whatever generation we're supposed to be talking about now, don't have student debt at all because they didn't go to college because most people don't go to college. Um, of the people who go to college, uh, most have fairly manageable debt. Uh, you know, the amount that would be like a, a fairly low end car payment every month. And um, as Mary Beth Akers said, argues, I uh, read in a piece a while back, um, most of the people in the in danger of defaulting on their student debt owe $5,000 or less. So you could easily just clear the low-hanging fruit. I'm not necessarily in favor of it, but you can clear the low-hanging fruit on student debt for the people really on the bubble of struggling um, by forgiving five grand of it. Now, uh, but the people who have the most student debt um, are uh, grad students, people who deliberately went to grad school Um I got no huge problem with people go to grad school. Some of my best friends went to grad school. I, I almost most, well, I got to think about that. At the very least, a sizable number of them went to grad school. Uh, and, uh, but if you choose a graduate degree in something that, you know, at this point, now keep in mind, you are a college educated person by definition, if you're going to grad school, and if you choose um, to get a master's or a PhD in something, you now have the mental and educational and resources uh, wherewithal. There's not the right grammar on that sentence. I, I apologize. Uh, you now have the wherewithal to figure out what makes sense in terms of um, uh, an economic, you know, cost benefit analysis for the kind of education that you're going to borrow for. And, um, if you get a master's in puppetry, which is still my favorite example from years ago, but there was a, I think it was the nation did this profile of a dude who, um, was part of the occupy wall street movement who left his good paying job as like a theater guy in a public high school to get a um, MFA in puppetry. And when he got out, he found that, that there was no school willing to pay him to be a master puppeteer or something like that. And he thought this was outrageous. And to be fair, he has kind of a point, which is the, which is part of the problem of all of this. A lot of a lot of school systems in this country, they have this policy of like continuing education thing. And so they encourage they encourage all their teachers to go back to grad school to get master's degrees in education. And they if you do, you get this automatic bump in salary because you have a master's in education. And I would have less of a problem with this if I didn't think that most education pro grad graduate education programs are garbage. Um I'm sure I'm being fair, unfair to some of them, and I'm sure there are important things that they study and understand in um, the field of graduate education studies. But for the most part, it's it seems to me sort of guild maintenance um, and the creation of a sort of, uh, you know, a, a Gnostic cabal where um, you get bought into. Uh, you know, the sort of educational version of the administrative state and you study meta crap rather than you actually study the ABCs of stuff. And I, again, I am sure I am being grotesquely um, uh, sweeping here and there, I'm sure there are counterexamples, but as a general proposition, um, uh, I think, anyway, getting back to the point, having grads, having all sorts of public sector uh institutions encouraging people to go get graduate degrees uh, just maintains the churn on all of this stuff. Um, and if, so anyway, if you want to get a graduate degree 
um, in something that you think will pay it off, um, that's great. Or if you want to get a grad, you know, a, a, a master's or a PhD and go into, uh, you know, the public sector, there are all these programs that will pay off your, your student loans. But this idea that somehow it is unfair for say Elon Omar to have, or AOC, um, to still have student debt, um, you know, these people make pretty decent income as it is. They have high status jobs. When they leave Congress, it's not like they will be taking a pay cut. They can handle their student loans. The idea that somehow they're saddled unfairly with student loans is ludicrous. If you'd said to anybody in college, hey, look, here's the deal. Take out these loans and, you know, you'll have some debt you'll go to Congress, you'll make a six-figure salary for a while in Congress, you'll get famous. Um, when you leave Congress, you'll be able to give speeches for 25 or 50 or 100 grand a pop for a while. You'll probably get a gig on TV. Um, and then you'll be able to pay off your loans in, in, you know, with a month's worth of income or two months' worth of income. Uh, no one's going to make that person you know, a, a, a poster child for the student debt crisis. And so when you, when Elizabeth Warren talks about cutting off about uh, canceling $50,000 of student debt, it is just a straight up giveaway to her base, to the overeducated graduate school attending graduate degree, having, um, hyper woke permanent education, permanent sort of student class that um, is much more, it's, it's interesting because Bernie Sanders, I think, has made a terrible mistake fully embracing all of this stuff. The Bernie bros, yes, there are a bunch of, of sort of permanent student grad schools type, social worker types and all that kind of stuff on the Bernie bro side. But there are also a lot more public sector, you know, public sector um, working class um, union types. And um, I think this is one of the things that we misunderstood about the primaries for a long time. We thought, including me, that the sort of left-wing lane were the same voters and that Buttigieg, Warren, and Sanders were all competing for the same voters when in reality they weren't. Uh, Bernie was kind of competing for the Union Hall Socialists and Elizabeth Warren was competing for the, um, you know, the, 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 the campus socialists or the, the wine and cheese socialists and they're just different groups. So I just find it, it's just basically um, a straight giveaway of cash at other people's expense. And um, you could, if you're actual, and I'm, I'm against this idea, but like if you want to, um, if you wanted to do this kind of thing, you know, there's a much stronger moral argument for, say, saying, okay, everybody who makes below, Fifty thousand or eighty thousand dollars a year, if it's a family of whatever, um, who um, has an auto loan, uh, forgive you know five grand of that. Those people are more likely to be. You, first of all, you get a lot of the grad students, right? You get a lot of the people with student debt in that. Some of them have cars, but you'd also get a lot of people who never went to college. And you know, I, I tweeted this yesterday, and. Um, a bunch of thoughtful people, you know, responded to me, including in my DMs saying, um, you know, my only major, you know, uh, one famous person, which I will not name um, because it was a DM, um, you know, said my only, I, I think this makes a very good point, but I, uh, my only major objection is we've told a bunch of people that they have to go to college, that college is what um, is their, their, their bridge to the middle class and then we saddle them with debt forever. Um, and I get that. And I think that is a problem. We tell too many people to go to college. You know, shout out to, you know, uh, Senator Shoshana and the guys at R Street. Occupational licensing reform is a profoundly egalitarian and democratic thing. Stop making college diplomas requirements for so many jobs that don't require college diplomas. Um, you know, I have no problem. If you want to make certain tests, um, 
required. Um, I would, I think hands-on tests would be better than sort of theoretical tests, but whatever. I don't know what the test, I don't know what the job we're talking about is, but if, if, if you want to make tests required for certain jobs, okay. But, um, the idea that you need a four-year college degree to do some of the jobs that require a four-year college degree or just, it's just sort of ludicrous. And, but I also think like, it's not, like I, so I was weird. I had a bunch of friends. They all wanted to go to college because they wanted to go to business school or they wanted to go into business or economics or med school and all that kind of stuff. And I was this loopy, weird dude who said, I don't really care about what the career I'm going to get out of going to college is. And I agree. That's weird. I'm abnormal. I think I've established that over a long career. Um, but I was kind of into the whole liberal arts education thing as like on its merits. And, um, and people thought I was weird and I, I didn't think they were weird. I just thought it was just not for me. I don't even want to say it was boring because I have nothing but respect for people who go to college so that they can like get their life going on the path and their careers that they want. But like I wanted to learn stuff and, um, but you know, my dad took out a modest student loan. Um, but I didn't take out massive student loans. I didn't saddle, saddle myself with debt as I went on a, you know, on a journey for my own edification or anything like that. Um, if you take out massive student loans, particularly for grad school, and it's not for, you know, law or medicine or one of those kinds of careers, you should have reasonable expectations about what kind of returns you're going to get. Apparently a bunch of schools do this thing for film where they promise, Wall Street Journal had this piece, I think, I don't want to get it wrong, but I think it was Columbia was offering this MFA for tens and tens of thousands of dollars to teach people about film and how to make film. And like almost nobody has made any money, you know, with one of these degrees. Um, it's kind of nuts. And so by all means, let's, you know, let's decry this situation. But, uh, like, the idea that somehow higher ed gets off scot-free because it's got really good lobbyists and it's got re you know, higher ed is so perfectly placed in all of these state hierarchies in terms of being, you know, the 800 pound gorilla because of sports, because of job creation and all that kind of stuff. It's like education and healthcare in many cities is, are, are the things that keep these cities afloat. I get all that, but that they, the, we need some massive reform of that kind of stuff before we just start saying the taxpayers should, should pick up the tab of trillions of dollars of student debt. Um, I, I do apologize. I feel like, um, like, you know, sometimes how, like when the audio starts to clip out, um, I feel like my brain is only saying every, every second word correctly or something like that. So I apologize if I'm, if I'm coming across weird, I am coming out of a torpor. Um, so let's talk about Fukuyama. I, 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 I really could go on at, could have gone on for hours with Fuki, with, with Frank Fukuyama. I'm a huge fan of his. I just want to be very clear about that. I'm a huge fan. Um, he is, um, um, one of, um, I'd say one of the biggest intellectual influences of my life. Uh, End of History, Last Man was a really exciting thing for me. Um, uh, his two-volume books on origins of political order, or what is it called? Um, yeah, I think that's right, Origins of Political Order. I was just looking over on my shelf, but it's too it's slightly too far away for me to read. Um, uh, was a big, big deal for me. I, I couldn't have written Suicide of the West um, without those books. Um, uh, I get, I did review one of his books negatively years ago. Um, and I'm embarrassed to say right this second, I can't remember the title of it. <laughs> um, and I wrote it for a, a Jewish quarterly. God, I, I apologize. I'll find it, maybe put it in the show notes. Um, and, uh, um, 
his book Trust was a big deal for me. You know, they're just a big Fukuyama fan. Um, and I really do, for, for people who are, it is, it is not for like the, like if, you, if, if you're the kind of, first of all, I doubt many of these kinds of people are listening to The Remnant, but if you're the kind of person who, who like didn't know what classical liberal was um, and aren't particularly interested in intellectual history and all that kind of stuff, I don't really recommend um, the book. But if you are um, even a of passing curiosity in this stuff and intellectually engaged, I really do recommend the book. Um, it's it's a very useful primer, and I'd say primer for me because I've been reading these you know in defense of liberalism things for a very long time. I wrote one of them, right? I mean, I know I, I've come to the conclusion that Suicide of the West was just simply a bad title, um, so I'm basically depending on who you talk to, either two for three or three for three in book titles. Um, and I, I vowed if I ever do a book again, I'm just simply not going to consult with the publisher and I'm going to insist on naming my books what I want to name them. Um, and um, I'm not saying that, I'm not blaming publishers, but you know, when you negotiate things like this, it's often more of a mess than if you just stick to what you want to do. Um, so where was I? So uh, there's a bunch in there I wish I could have pushed back more on um, because while I think it's a great book, they're just, they're places where I kind of disagree. I wanted to, um, I, w I, was, I was trying to be playful if I remember correctly the conversation when I said it, you know, I, I don't think you're a Straussian, but um, because the problem I get with a lot of of Fukuyama stuff, and I think the Iraq War was part of this, is that he is so completely broken with you know categorical or ideological thinking. And what I mean by that is like, um, as we sort of discussed, right? His his point is, which I agree with entirely, right? I mean, I, I like part of my frustration is that you know. I feel like I covered a lot of this stuff in my book and I've been talking about this for a very long time. And look, Fukuyama is about 25 orders of magnitude, a bigger deal than I am. Um, that may be lowballing it. Uh, but you know, I've been long time readers and listeners know I've been talking about how, you know, all poisons are determined in the dose, um, for a very long time, which is to say that most good things become bad things. Um, if you take them to extremes, um, this is true for almost every single thing in life. Um, and it gets to this other thing I've been talking about for years about the monoc, you know, about, uh, reducing everything to a single variable, um, is intellectually and epistemologically ridiculous. Um, yes, you can reduce, uh, I don't know. Can you reduce everything to matter or energy or whatever? But, you know, in terms of politics and in life, when you reduce things down to a single variable, um, your model and your analysis is always going to be wrong. This is why conspiracy theories that just depend on, you know, cui bono, who, who got paid, right? Or is the, I like how the Italians say it, che paga. Um, when you're, you know, when your theory is about solely about, um, you know, uh, bribery right you know getting rich you know it's a it's a war for oil um i remember during the iraq war how you know there were so many people on the left who insisted that cheney and rumsfeld and bush they were all just doing it for personal profit and um newsflash they weren't um you know and this is not to say that people don't do things for personal profit but like People, one of the things we should have learned in the last five or six years is that people come up with all sorts of rationalizations and competing, um, or I should say complementary justifications for their bad ideas and their bad actions. And um, sort of like the discussion I've been having about, you know, realism, um, you know, nations don't just do stuff um, for their raw uh, you know, 
rational self-interest. They do things for like out of notions of honor and prestige and status and revenge and vindication and glory and all that. Um, the, the whole idea of homo economicus is a perfectly fine idea. Um, as a two dimensional economic thing, right? And you're just talking about like sort of the game theory of it, but no one actually ever argued that man was solely homo economicus or very few people do did. Um, that's certainly not the, the, if memory serves, the term came up as a sort of pejorative. Um, and this is something that, 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 that Fukuyama talks about in the book is like how or he talks about it in a lot of places, but he talked about it in the book as well is that, people people's motivations are diverse and complex and um um we do things for all sorts of different re i forgot where i was coming from on this okay that's right um so you know he 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 makes this this point and he embraces this point and i think he is right um the problem i have is that at times it kind of feels like he is um, just walking away from ideological guardrails. Um, and I don't think this is fair. I just wanted to probe this with him because um, I agree entirely that principles taken to extremes become, I don't know, what's the opposite of a principle? Vices, right? Um or virtues taken to extremes can become vices. Um, but, uh, that if that's the point, right. If that you can take a principle too far, well then what you need is a limiting principle, which still means that you need principles. And I think, you know, his argument is liberalism, but liberalism needs to be informed by some hard principles they can't all just be judgment calls unless and this is the other thing I was trying to get at. We lean on culture to do the work that principles can't unless, you know, culture is the place where, um, our principles sort of take root and find, uh, authentic, uh, indigenous, uh, expression. And if you rely solely on the sort of the, the steel superstructure of, of principle, um, you can't hang anything on that. You need to have culture build up around it, right? It's sort of like an artificial reef. You can dump the oil rig into the bottom of the, um, um, on the ocean, but you need to give it time for the coral and, uh, the suckerfish and all, and the crabs and all these things to build and the seaweed to build up around it, to make it an ecosystem. Culture is the ecosystem for principles. And, um, I don't think he would necessarily disagree with this, but when, you know, when you, when you read them, there's this, as I, as I said in the conversation, there's this sort of, you know, Milton Friedman had a point, but he went too far. Uh, John Rawls made a point, but he went too far. Um, and, uh, and I, you, so you, you need an argument for where do you find, um, wh where, where are the checks on going too far? And I don't know what the answer is to that per se, other than culture. And I think one of the problems we have in our culture is that it doesn't want to impose those checks anymore. I really liked his conversation on Rawls. Um, um, I, you know, I read Rawls, but I read Rawls a long time ago and I've been sort of glibly feeding off of my anti Rawls stuff sort of secondhand for a long time because I just didn't want to reread Rawls. And, you know, my standard criticism of Rawls for those who don't, no, John Rawls, I mean, we talked about this in the Fugama thing, but maybe you missed it, or maybe we didn't get into details on it. Um, Rawls is, you know, according to, to, to Fugama, and I think a lot of other people, you know, the most important um, left liberal philosopher 
of certainly the modern era, if, you know, arguably alongside Dewey in the 20th century, um, maybe Dewey and James. I, I had my problems with James, but James was, I, I think, a better dude than both of them. I don't want to say that. I don't know about their character very much, although I've heard there are people who hold paper on Rawls that um, um, I don't want to traffic in, but, um, you know. But anyway, my my standard two complaints, which I'm sure I've talked about on here before, about Rawls are one, you know, one of my longstanding arguments about progressivism is that it sees the role of the state as doing um, what God would do if God existed. But since God doesn't exist, um, we're going to, or at least he's not intervening, um, you know, because there are definitely Christians who um, have essentially this view, they want to use the state as God. And, you know, this was a big part of the social gospel. This is, you know, all the Rauschenbusch and, um, um, and Richard Eli stuff, you know, um, you know, Eli talks about, you know, borrowing from Hegel that, you know, the state is the, you know, fullest expression of God on earth. Walter Rauschenbusch talking about, you know, because food prices were high, declares, uh, you know, let the God of lower food prices be God. And the whole veil of ignorance thing that John Rawls comes up with says that, you know, uh, and, and Fugiyama is a good summary of this. I, I wrote about this a good bit, um, in a re review of a quirky little uh, boutique movie called Nine Days um, for the Dispatch a while back, maybe last summer, which I really, really liked. Um, and I've also talked about this in the context of the Gosnell stuff and all that. But so anyway, the Rawls has this, you know, the veil of ignorance, which basically says it's a thought experiment that says, imagine we all start in the original position. And what he means by that is basically some limbo where you are a disembodied soul where you could be, um, born on earth, black, white, gay, straight, um, tall, short, handicapped, physically impressive, whatever, right? You can be rich, poor and all that stuff. Right. And, um, and so the question then is how would you design a society so that you had the best chance to be your full self and, um, and to have the best life. And, uh, you know, the idea being that since you don't know whether you be born poor and, and, and crippled, you would, um, make sure there were certain safeguards for you. Right. And all that kind of stuff. And, that's all, that's a really important, useful thought experiment. I think it is as a sort of heuristic, clarifying conversation starter and all the rest. But so this is my first problem. Traditionally, my first problem with Rawls is that first of all, it starts from the presumption that you can do that, that human beings are so godlike in their ability to envision the system in its totality that they could design a system like that. Not only that they could design a system like that, but that they could actually implement a system like that. Um, and it sort of seems to me the proof or a great example of this sort of, um, we're going to act as God, um, here on earth kind of thing. And, um, you know, I'm sure someone could come up with something pretty impressive on paper about that guaranteed perfect justice for everybody. Lots of people have tried that from Plato <laughs> to Marx to, you know, uh, BF Skinner. I don't know. You can go down a whole list of utopians and quasi utopians. Rousseau, blah, 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 blah. The problem is, 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 is making it work. And it's because we do not have perfect knowledge of this world. We do not know how to live other people's lives better than they know how to live themselves for the most part, um, that you can't do it. Right. So that's like my first problem is that the second you have, you start from a position of what if I were God, uh, you're going to get yourself into trouble. 
the second problem I always had with it was um, that Rawls, my understanding, you know, uh, used to have a more nuanced position on abortion and then out of sort of loyalty to the left became uh, what was fully on board with um, sort of the maximalist abortion rights stuff. And the thing is, is if you follow the lot, if you take the logic of the veil of ignorance in the original position, seriously, abortion's a big problem, right? Because you're embodied, you're, you're imagining a disembodied soul. And, um, you're saying that, uh, you know, you want to design a society that gives people the fullest opportunity to be, um, their best selves. And, um, um, and I guarantee you pretty much maybe not every single one, <laughs> but my guess is somewhere up in the 99th percentile of those disembodied souls, um, would first want the shot of being born, of actually being brought into this world, right? Not like, um, uh, being taken out of the race at the starting line. And you, you can disagree with that. Lots of reasonable and understandable people do, but if you're going to take, you know, the, one of the most important philosophers of the 20th century's most important thought experiments seriously, um, that's a huge flaw. It's just a massive flaw. Um, but anyway, Fukuyama, which I did not get to get into. And the reason I keep calling Fukuyama is I just feel uncomfortable kind of calling him Frank. Um, or, or Francis and, and not just because of the stripes connotations. Um, but the point he gets into, which I think is like hugely important. Um, and I've never given the kind of emphasis that sort of deserves, and I'm a little embarrassed by it is, um, this whole idea of, of, of sort of, of Rawlsian non-judgmentalism. Um, let me put it this way. I've written a lot about the problem of non-judgmentalism, um, uh, and of sort of radical moral relativism. I just kind of bums me out that I haven't connected it more to Rawls. Um, and so, you know, he has a chapter on, you know, the problems of neoliberalism, which we can get into. I, I, you know, including, you know, Duncan on Robert Bork, which pain amigas, I like work a lot, but I'm not going to get into antitrust theory too deeply here. Um, um, I like the idea that there's somebody out there like at a Starbucks and when he hears me say, I'm not going to get too deep into antitrust theory. He just hurls his coffee cup across the room and says, damn it. Anyway. Um, uh, you know, he's a chapter, you know, he, he goes back and forth. Here's the problem with these people. Here's the problem with those people. Here's where they went too far. Here's where they went too far. Here's what, you know, they make a good point, but they go too far. They make a good point. They go too far. And, um, uh, and so his chapter on what went wrong with left liberalism is basically based on Rawls. And I think he's entirely right. And he makes this argument or he, but he just walks you through how, what Rawls is, does is he basically, he says explicitly um, justice comes before the good. What it means by that is that basically since everything is contingent and accidental in life, that the distribution of wealth and, and, and luck and, um, and individual talent is random and unjustified that therefore everybody alive has equal claim on the distribution of these things. And everybody has, um, equal, uh, right to define their lives however they want. Now I spent a lot of time talking about how the pursuit of happiness is an individual right. And everybody has the right to pursue happiness as they see it. And I believe that passionately, but that doesn't mean getting back to culture that I can't condemn two people. I can't condemn somebody for um, pursuing a very bad kind of happiness because if you don't have stigma on certain, you know, life choices um, 
If you say all life choices are equal, people will make a lot of bad choices. This is not an argument for the law imposing these things, but it is an argument for culture because culture matters. You know, I mean, certainly in your family, the culture of your family matters. If you encourage or don't condemn certain behavior for your kids, you'll get certain outcomes that aren't good. And everybody implicitly understands this. And I don't think I have to belabor the point. And so, you know, uh, you know, Fukuyama runs through this, you know, basic sort of thought experiment, which he gets a bit from Sandel, um, where he's like, you know, you say you have one guy who spends one, one 18, 19, 20 year old, I can't remember how old he is, um, spends his days playing video games, mooching off his parents' fridge, not looking for work, smoking pot, um, does just enough to, uh, you know, sort of get by, but has no ambition, um, isn't very thoughtful or helpful to anybody. Um, and then you have another kid who, uh, works really hard, applies herself, goes to school, um, has real career ambitions, volunteers at a soup kitchen, yada, yada, yada. Um, um, according to, let me find the quote. I, I marked it. Okay. Let's see. John, this is what, uh, you know, this is, this is Fukuyama's summary. He says, John Rawls's theory of justice would not allow either public authorities or the rest of us to pass judgment on these two individuals and say that we found the woman to be morally superior to the man in any way. Now, I just think that's nuts. Now, there's a lot of loaded stuff in about public authorities because, you know, policy issues are, are a different issue. But like, um, certainly in principle society, right. Which is a mix of both, you know, the culture and government and everything in between, um, should have like different standards, uh, you know, judge these people differently. And, um, and, but for Rawls, there is no conception of a co no civic conception or even common sense conception of, uh, a productive good life. And from this, according to Fukuyama flows, all sorts of bad cultural things. And I think he's in, in broad brushstrokes, absolutely right. Um, you know, and we can, we can do a whole cultural history on this, which we don't have time for, um, you know, about, you know, I don't know. The thing that pops into my head is like the Moynihan report on the Negro family where Moynihan was being condemned as, as racist for being concerned about family breakdown. And his point was entirely sort of, uh, I don't say entirely, nearly entirely analytical. It was like, you know, that's why he starts, you know, with, with this, Irish slums of the 19th century. Um, you know, his point was that young men who aren't properly socialized by two parent families get themselves into lots of trouble. And one hand turned out to be right. And, um, things stabilized after a while, but we had to pay an enormous price, particularly for African Americans. But now, you know, the, the stigma against, uh, family breakdown has broken down. And, um, you know, uh, I don't want to get into a big thing about family breakdown, but you get my point. Um, the idea that somehow you can't have, you know, moral standards about how to judge people's behavior, um, and that all individual life choices are equal, uh, strikes me as a choice, you know, as a suicidal choice for, a, a civilization. I wish someone had wrote a book called suicide of the West, um, where I kind of differ with, and this is where, you know, it's funny because I got my, um, argument in suicide of the West, not entirely, but a big chunk of it from Fukuyama about this idea of decay, right. Of entropy. Um, and, um, uh, because in his two volume origins of political order book, he gets, he goes into it quite a bit. Um, and, and so, 
his argument that this is all about taking liberalism to an extreme, I think is the wrong intellectual construct. Um, I'm not saying it's irrational. I'm not saying it's stupid by any stretch of the imagination. I think it has a lot of insight, but as he might say, he makes a good point, but he goes too far with it. And this is what I was getting at with, you know, the roles of intellectuals versus culture. When I was talking to him, um, I think he puts too much emphasis on the, um, on the intellectuals, the role of philosophers and intellectuals in, in, in these trends. I think that the intellectuals are sometimes better understood as die markers, um, or metaphors or symbols is probably the best word, um, for these trends. And I, I, I think I wrote about this in Suicide West. I certainly have talked about this a bunch. They're just a whole bunch of books that are famous for like launching intellectual movements, which are more like, um, talismans for intellectual movements that had already formed. Um, probably the best example, which I'm sure I've talked about before is, is, uh, the greening of America, which is a really horrible book that I'm convinced very few people read, but sold a lot of copies. And basically it just said, you know, young people, you know, go let your freak flag fly. And that we're entering a new age of consciousness or Aquarius or whatever. Shut up. Let me smash your guitar against the Delta house wall. Uh, Reich was a weird dude. Um, basically I think, you know, he went, you know, he was like a virgin till he was 40. He got laid and thought he was the first person to ever get laid and like it changed his life. And he thought, you know, we are entering, um, you know, we were eminentizing the eschaton as a result or something like that. Anyway, it's been a long time since I read up on it, but, um, even Herbert Crowley's the promise of American life. Uh, you know, I'm sure a bunch of people read it. Yeah, you know, Herbert, not Herbert, uh, Teddy Roosevelt read it and changed his life. Um, but it was really more of a sort of thing that congealed and um, codified and physically manifested ideas whose time was believed to have come. Um, and um, and so I'm not trying to like dethrone Kant and Locke and all that kind of stuff. Um, obviously wildly influential, but I, I, I think it's, you know, the, the people don't appreciate that sort of, it's sort of the intellectual version of, of the sort of great man of history argument that you get for people like Lincoln, that like when the, um, when, or Zelensky, right. Sometimes crises create the great men that, um, um, are required to fix them. Um, sometimes changing intellectual climates, zeitgeists, whatever, um, create the intellectuals that define them. And, and so I am, so where I, where I kind of disagree with him is that, um, I think classical liberalism um, when, so he, uh, put this, when I really, I should review the book. Um, classical liberalism, his argument on a whole bunch of fronts is people take this principle and they go too far with it. And that's fine. And I agree. You know, uh, poison's determined by the dose. Absolutely. Um, sort of like my thing about nationalism, it's like salt, you know, no, you know, no salt and you have a flavorless dish, uh, a little salt, it brings the flavors together, um, too much salt and it, it overpowers the dish and way too much salt is literally lethal. Um, and, uh, so I agree with all that, but I think it's like, I, I think my formulation, to be honest, in suicide of the West helps illuminate um, the problem more in the sense that, you know, my argument was that basically romanticism never died and romanticism is the rebellion against reason. Romanticism is this idea that your internal moral compass is the only moral compass that matters. Um, you know, that, that as, as, you know, 
it inverts the the standard liberal narrative, um, Western Christian, Judeo-Christian narrative, which Fukuyama does a good job describing, of original sin. Um, because, you know, as Rousseau put it, who's like the founder of romanticism, people forget, um, founder is strong. One of the, he's on the Mount Rushmore of romanticism. Um, you know, Rousseau's argument was basically, um, we were born good and we are turned evil by society. Uh, man is born free and as yet everywhere is in chains. That civilization enslaves us to inauthentic views, habits, um, customs, um, that we are, you know, the problem with modernity is that we are disordered, disordered and alienated from our true selves. There's an amazing amount of Rousseauian gobbledygook on the, on the various quarters of the new right these days. Um, uh, you know, there was a time in fact, when people used to talk about when, when you describe what nationalism was, people use the phrase romantic nationalism, look it up in the academic literature, you know, um, some people, you know, referred to Rousseauian nationalism. Um, and, uh, and so I think a lot of the stuff that he's, that he describes at least in his sort of Rawls part and his identity politics part and his populism stuff is, is less an example of forms of liberal principle being taken too far and more forms of, uh, romanticism bending and disordering what liberalism actually means. And, and this gets me back to the, uh, the point of decay and corruption. Um, um, you know, human nature is part of nature. Um, you know, maybe one of these days I'll just do my full book talk on here, but you know, human nature is nature as far as I'm concerned, right? Um, we are born the same creatures that we were, uh, 10,000 and a and hundred thousand years ago. Um, I'm sure some of the genetic programming is slightly different, but in broad brushstrokes, we have the same instincts, impulses, desires, um, when we're born today than we were, than we had 10,000 or 50,000 years ago. Um, it's the factory preset software for human beings. Um, what turns us into Americans, um, Goldbergs, uh, you know, uh, New Yorkers, whatever is civilization. Civilization is, 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 you know, just the, whatever the right phrase, the noun form of the verb to civilize. Um, and human nature kind of rebels against civilization. If human, if, if liberal democratic capitalism were natural, it would have showed up in the evolutionary record, you know, a little earlier um, than it has. Um, and there's a reason for that is because uh, it took thousands of generations of trial and error and setbacks um, to come up with this thing. And, um, and it's not natural. And because it's, and so like, I can't tell you many people say, oh, so you can see that it's not natural. It's like, yeah, of course I can see that it's not natural. Um, you know, uh, lots of things are not natural. Antibiotics are not natural. Uh, air travel is not natural. Uh, dentistry is not natural. I mean, like, you know, dentistry in our evolutionary environment was tooth hurt, hit with rock. Um, and so the, 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 if you do not enforce the norms of civilization in such a way as to perpetuate them, um, human nature starts coming back in. And I know I'm a broken record on this, right? But it's like, you know, rust is utterly blind to what it is trying to rust. Uh, termites do not care if it's a beautiful Steinway piano or an old outhouse, right? You, you, nature takes what it wants. The, the Roman poet Horace says, you know, you can chase nature out with a pitchfork. It will always come rush, rushing back in. 
The world is prone to entropy and decay. And what is entropy and decay other than than nature reclaiming what it belong what what belongs to her right it is the um you know the second law of thermodynamics and um and there's a i i plugged it before but the steve pinker essay on this for god what was it nerve whatever um um was great on this but i can't remember where it was or what it's called i'll try and put it in the show notes anyway um and so I think that so much of what we see as, I'm not saying ideas don't matter because ideas are often the weapons by which factions um, win or lose. And um, we, we downplay, so arguments matter still. I'm not saying arguments don't matter, but um, I'm not saying intellectuals don't matter, but I think an enormous amount of the stuff that we think are ideas running amok are in fact human nature um, weaponizing ideas for their own um, professional, personal, status, class, anxiety reasons. And um, and so I, I agree with Fukuyama that a lot of the problems come from taking certain ideas too far. But the reason why people are taking these ideas too far is to give themselves a permission structure to satisfy their more basic, uh, natural desires for, you know, power and ambition. And, um, you look at the arguments, basically any public policy argument today, and you can find somebody basically making arguments that are against their avowed principles, um, not every single person, but you know, among various factions, you can find people making arguments against their avowed principles because they are essentially in their more fundamental sort of base, uh, interests in terms of satisfying the sort of the demands of human nature. And one of the things, you know, like one of the things I learned from Fujiyama is that there's never been a society everywhere, anywhere in the world where people haven't given, um, uh, people haven't given preference to family first and and friends second. That's how we're wired, right? And that's a big part of the argument of suicide of the West is that's corruption, right? That's the story that I always tell about my dad. You know, saying how the most corrupting thing in business isn't isn't money; it's friendship, because you do things for friends in the microcosm that you you know that 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 you that you wouldn't do for strangers in the macrocosm. You, you know, you know, you bend the rules for people that are within the circle of trust or whatever, or that you consider part of your, your clan, your tribe. Um, so anyway, I'm, I know I'm rambling. It's, um, I'm so friggin' sleep deprived. <laughs> um, so, uh, I got to hop off in a minute. Um, I'm sure we'll come back to this stuff. I apologize if this is just like a greatest hits, you know, redux. Um, don't know what I'm going to write about in the G file today. I got to do the dispatch podcast in a little bit. Um, um, I'm sure I'm going to repeat myself a little bit on the student loan stuff. Um, and, uh, the, uh, um, not sure whether Madison Cawthorn is worth writing about again, but that's, um, um, ironic, um, um, kind of sad, you know, I mean, I, I've had a lot of contempt for the guy for a very long time and, um, I'm starting to feel like he's basically a Hunter Biden type, um, and someone who just, you know, unlike Hunter Biden, who is not in government, um, but both of them should have no, should be nowhere near government, um, uh, because they're just, um, they've given into human nature and, um, um, it's sad. Uh, my wife is back. A uh, bunch of people wanted to know whether there was a welcoming committee video of, uh, her coming home with the dogs. Unfortunately, it just didn't work out. I was so sick and, um, 
just it's complicated, but uh, it, it didn't come out. But she had a great trip. And the exciting news is she has agreed to come back on the remnant sometime soon. She has to get clearance for uh, because she partly wants to talk about a project she was working on and, and she has to get clearance on that. But she also wants to talk about her trip to um, uh, the old country. Um, you know, she was in Slovakia where her dad is from and do, on, doing some interesting things. I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Um, and, uh, and I want to thank David for being a trooper, for pitching in for me, um, on the earlier podcast this week and also for, uh, taking one for the team on dispatch live because I just couldn't do it. And, um, uh, and thanks for all the feedback people, you know, um, I wish sometimes could people could be just a little less strident, you know, in their, um, stuff, but, uh, at least in the, in the, the comment section at the dispatch, because we are trying to make it a, we're trying to keep it. Cause I think it is still arguably the best comment section out there. Um, cause we have the best, you know, subscribers, um, but we like to keep it that way. And sometimes people just get, and certain people in particular, just, you know, get a full head of steam on themselves. Um, and uh, other than that, thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.